Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want you to find the second chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is our text this morning, as we re-enter a series that we rightfully took a break from last week as Dr. Ellen poured his wisdom into us from God's Word. I so enjoyed his investment, but I look forward to being back with you in this place this morning. We are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse. If you are a guest of ours, the pattern of our preaching ministry is to preach God's Word, word by word, line by line, verse by verse. We began the book of 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, and we are involved in a series we've entitled The Wisdom of God. Now, not in 1 Corinthians, but the half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote these words in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The subject of wisdom is near and dear to Paul's life when he writes this letter to the Corinthian believers because they are being misled misguided by worldly wisdom that's cloaked in spiritual jargon. Now, when we deal with wisdom in the world, we are always trying to discern, is this from God or is this from the world? Is this of Christ or is it of the culture? I'll tell you one thing I don't understand. One thing I struggle with. I live in between being a young man and an old man. At this point in my life, I'm 44. Some of you older than me are calling yourselves middle-aged. Stop lying. (laughs) I don't know that I'll make 88. I doubt that I will. I'll probably impose some sort of accident on myself with my track record. But I am absolutely in the center of my life. I remember being young and having phraseology that my grandparents couldn't understand. Now, I don't understand my children. I had a little fun this weekend. I posted on my Instagram account, if you're 18 and under, give me the words you use that your parents don't understand. Here were the top finishers. Salty, no kizzy, drip, no cap, wicked, sick, you're in your bag, This food is bussin', and what the move? I will provide no translation of any of those. But there is one that people are using that sort of does capture my attention this morning. It's when you experience something in a new way, we say, man, That just hit different. Hit different or hits different. Now, I can tell you as a young man, if you'd have asked me what or who hits different, I would have told you All-American fullback Fred Beasley at Auburn University because it was my job on the practice team to take him on every day, and he hit different. There are at least two concussions in my past that that belonged to him. But that's not what hits different means. In fact, the Urban Dictionary says this about something that hits different. The phrase hits different is used when an experience, memory, emotion, feeling, etc., 
feels better than what the standard experience would be as described by the Urban Dictionary. So let me translate for some of you older than me that are still struggling to follow me. You can see a picture of the Grand Canyon. You can Google it right now on your device. I hope you don't, but you can. But when you stand in person and look at the vast chasm that is the Grand Canyon, it just hits different. I used to tell you that watching a Little League baseball game was cute. And it was. But when your kid's up to bat, it just hits different. You want so badly for them to, one, make contact, and two, not run to third base. <laughs> it just hits different. Now, if I'm being more serious this morning, it was one thing for us to pray for Ukraine, but pastor's prayer just hit different. It just connected and resonated in a way too great for the language barrier that may exist. What happens when you come across a ministry or a man of God that just hits different? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is probably one of the most familiar passages to me, and here's why. It was the passage my mentor in seminary over 20 years ago ground into the DNA of my development. He made all of his preaching students exegete study, dig deep, dwell on, saturate, marinate in this passage. So when I came to it in my preparation, I smiled because it is a passage I'm very familiar with. And when I read it to you, while you may not have read it as much as I have, you will have heard it before, and I hope today it just hits different. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verses 1 through 5 is Paul's description of his entrance into the Corinthian believers' lives. This is what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he concludes in verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, some of you may be thinking this would be a great sermon at a seminary. This would be good to go to North Greenville or Anderson or Charleston Southern and preach to many of those college students preparing for ministry. Pastor, I'm not in ministry. I'm, I'm not a pastor. This is really not applicable to my life. Well, you know i got to an answer for that. The first answer is all of God's Word is for all of God's people. But before I even unpack this passage that means so much to me, this is a very personal sermon. Let me give you very quickly five reasons why you need this word. Number one, all of you are called to follow pastors and leaders. The Bible calls every Christian to engage in the body of Christ. And by default, there will be men who lead you as pastors, and there will be men and women who fill various roles within the church. And all of us are called to follow and to be submissive to their lead to the degree to which they are faithful to the Lord. Two, 
But all of you are free to choose who they are. Not one person forced you to choose this church this morning. You may be a minor and here against your own will. Your parents made you come, but those days will come to an end. And at some point, every one of you will have a choice to make as to who you follow. Thirdly, some of you are feeling a call in your life. I especially think about this as I see the number of college students increase in our church. In our second hour, we'll see more and more of our students. Some are in this service. Many will be in the second hour. And I believe God is calling some of them to pastor and to preach and to share and to teach and to be missionaries and to be ministers of the gospel. Fourth, mom and dad, some of you are raising pastors. You don't know it yet. He may be a hellion right now. But you may have a young man in your life who's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old that God in his sovereignty has a call on his life. You may be raising a young lady right now, a young woman, who will be used in her gifts inside of the church. Finally, all of us are called to emulate our leaders. So learning what's expected of a leader, in essence, is learning what's expected of your life. What did the writer of Hebrews say. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So when we think about the opportunity to look at a passage like this, I hope you will see the connection. What happens when a man of God hits different? First of all, his preaching hits different. Look what Paul says in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you, that's his preaching, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, Paul's not saying, I didn't proclaim to you the testimony of God. He's saying there's a way in which I did not do it. So, one of the things we find in the Corinthian church that is a struggle is that they are elevating human leaders based on their ability to wax eloquently, to have extremely attractive rhetoric, to ooh and awe the crowd with charisma, to gather up a group of people and lay word upon word and phrase upon phrase, so much so that everybody is so enamored by their ability to speak their ability to do oration, to orally communicate, that they begin to line up and by default assume that loyalty to this leader means you're more spiritual than being loyal to this leader or this leader or this leader. In fact, one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians is because the church is being divided into camps. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Others are saying, no, I follow Peter. Some are saying, no, 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 I just follow Christ. I don't need a human leader. And Paul writes this letter saying, wait a minute, your criteria for what should matter in preaching and proclamation has been twisted by the world's infatuation with being impressed or enamored by the eloquency of the speech and not the power of the message. And interestingly, one of the things that's inferred by this verse is that the difference when a man is truly called of God and his ministry matches this characteristic, the difference in his preaching hitting differently has to do with the fact that his message is from God. It's of God. Look at verse 1. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony. Some translations say the mystery or the message 
of God. So it was just understood that, that his job was to communicate the words of God to people. Paul couldn't get past this. This is why we walk through books of the Bible. This is why we read the text and we explain the text. This is why when you hear me preach, you're doing this all morning long. We're going in and out, in and out, in and out. My mentor taught me that don't use the Bible as a diving board for the swimming pool of your sermon. Don't dive off of a scripture and then say what you want to say for 40 minutes. No, the scripture should be the water in the pool. Get in it with your people. Swim around with it. Drink it. Smell it. Let it run up your nose and hurt you every once in a while. And make sure you get out wet when church is let out. Make sure the word is all over you. Why though? Why do we believe that? Well, what did Paul tell young Timothy, a young pastor, a young preacher? He says, Timothy, all scripture, church family, that even means 75 weeks in Jeremiah. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And look what it does for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. It tells us what to do. It tells us when we don't do it right. It tells us the right way to make what's wrong right. And then it tells us to keep doing it over and over again. So it's no wonder that in the very next chapter of 2 Timothy, what does Paul tell Timothy? Timothy, preach the Word. Not your ideas about the word, not practical application laced in Christian language. Preach the word and preach it when you don't feel like preaching it and preach it when you feel like preaching it. Be ready in season and out of season. And when you do it for your people, reprove them and rebuke them and exhort them, but do it with patience and teaching. Don't just scream and holler at them and don't give up on them. You're not the Holy Spirit. You can't fix anybody. I don't know the mystery of what God is doing in your heart, but I know if you get the word, then you're getting the words of God because I'm holding it. And the word of God coming through your ear, if you're saved, joins the spirit of God that lives in you to change the child of God to be more like the son of God for the glory of God. So, Timothy, preach the word. So, it's no wonder that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when I came to you, I came with God's message, but my message was about Christ and the crucified life. Those are the two ways it hits different. One, he preaches messages from God. And secondly, he preaches Christ and the crucified life. Look at verse 2. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided. So Paul knew there was a decision to make. It is a tempting thing to want to draw people to the next and greatest thing. So many of our modern pulpits are so predictable. There's a series on marriage and a series on sex and a series on parenting a series on relationship. We have preached all those, and those are good. But if the pattern of your preaching ministry is you just see where the wind is blowing and decide to speak about it, you never do what preaching is supposed to do. It is not first and foremost to self-diagnose your problems and solve them because this is not just an instruction manual. This is, and preaching is designed to make you walk out those doors saying, I got a big God. I got a victorious Savior, and it is Christ in my marriage, and Christ in my relationships, and Christ in the geopolitical struggles of the world, and Christ when I fail him, and Christ when I serve him, and Christ when I worship him. It's Christ. And so what happens 
In verse two is he said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, default. Paul could have known some other stuff. He probably spoke at least five languages. He could move in and out of the rabbis inside of the Sanhedrin council. He could walk right in to Corinth and reason with the Greeks. Paul was the Indiana Jones of the first century when it comes to missionaries. He could do it all, but he said, I made a decision that I'm not going to let my message be anything other than this. And what is verse 2? He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and not Jesus your boyfriend and not Jesus your buddy and not Jesus. Jesus, your co-pilot, and him crucified. Him crucified because he knew something. He knew that the delivery of the gospel was to give people a way in which to know the person of God. We're inviting people into a relationship with the risen Savior. You can't be risen unless you're dead. You're not dead unless you're crucified. And so, Paul says the moment that Christianity became accessible to every person in this room and every person under my voice and every person that Paul ever preached to in Corinth was the moment that the Son of God died for the sins of the world. So I preach Christ and I preach him crucified. The blood of Jesus is our access. When Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, he says these words in the book of Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where, prepositional phrases matter, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you've, if you've ever come to church saying, man, I, I need a word today for my situation. I wish God would fix this, or I don't know what to do about that. I share those same sentiments. I have sat where you've sat. I have been discouraged. I have been confused. I've been sinful. There have been times when I've walked into a church and I feel dry and empty, and yet I don't see any obvious disobedience in my life. And so I'm wondering, God, why am I in this rut? There have been other times where I have certainly been rebellious or sinful. There are things in my life I've compromised, and I walk into church and I feel dirty and I feel guilty and I feel conviction. And if we're not careful in our human rationale, we'll be like, man, I hope the pastor says something that I can apply. If there's a knob I can turn, if there's a switch I can flip, if there's a tweak where I can make my husband or make my wife or make my children or make my boss see and the problem is, there's not, because he's already given us everything we need in his son. So, so it's not about getting more of God if you know Christ. It's about letting Christ get more of you, which means that we weekly remind ourselves, he's enough. I don't have anything else to offer you. There's nothing new. I'm never going to preach a different Bible or a different word or a different plan of salvation. And the glorious thing about that is, is that when you have a relationship with Christ, while he has given you everything you need to honor him inside of that relationship, you'll never exhaust exploring new ways that he teaches and that he loves and that he encourages and that he disciplines and that he shapes and that he molds. I've known scholars who've studied Christ all their lives and still feel like libraries of untold mysteries are about him. And yet even the beautiful faith of a nine or 10 year old child can trust and believe upon Christ. So every blessing of God is in Christ. So every sermon ought to make much of Christ 
through the word, which is one story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation about man falling, Christ coming, Christ dying, Christ living, and when you read the last chapter, Christ winning. And so this is the story of redemption as told in the word. And we know this applies to our life because the crucifixion is not supposed to be just a past event. It's supposed to be a past event that we reenact even though we don't die. What did Jesus say in the book of Luke? What did he say? And he said to all those, if anyone would come after me, I hope that's you, that's certainly me, I want to follow the Lord. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. The reason I can take my cross up daily is that I don't have to die physically for my sins anymore. Jesus did that. But I do have to die to my will. I do have to die to my own ambition, my own self. And for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. Now, this really applies when we begin to see the struggles of Christians. Look at this next verse as we think about and unpack this in the Scriptures. When we talk about what Paul is saying in verse 2, he says these words, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In the book of 2 Corinthians, where Paul is speaking about this, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Can you imagine what this means to the Ukrainian church this morning? Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. But watch the next verse. This is so good. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I might die today. Christians died last night. I might die today, but because I carry the knowledge of his death, even when I die, I live. So the removal of my greatest enemy has already taken place. Now, why would any preacher want to preach anything different than that? When we think about a man of God who hits different, his preaching hits different. Secondly, his presence hits different. Look at verse 3. Paul says, and I was with you. Paul didn't simulcast in. I was with you. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, We don't have any account to believe that Paul was a coward. In fact, if you read the book of Galatians in the original language, he's pretty much yelling from verse 1. He is upset and hot. There is a thing called righteous and holy anger, and sometimes in leadership you have to display that in love. But Paul has never been accused of being a coward, yet Paul wanted them to know there is a difference between confidence in the Lord and conceit in yourself. And you see this in spiritual leadership by outcome. If the goal of a spiritual leader is more followers, more money, more influence, more places where their face dawns the front cover of their books, then you can tell their objective. It is to be seen as influential, as powerful, as charismatic, as as someone who moves people. Paul says, I didn't come that way. I came in fear and in weakness and trembling. But, but he doesn't leave weak. He starts weak and gets stronger. Look what the Scripture says in verse 3. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. So Paul's life was humble and his language was humble. He did not try to be what he was not. I teach preaching some adjunctively, and whenever I teach young men to preach, I always say, work on your pronunciations. Study. Try to improve what you have. But don't get up there and be what you're not. Be you. You don't have a right to be anybody else. No one else can preach like you, and you don't need to try to preach like someone else. I would say that for you in leadership, if you're a small group leader, if you're trying to share your faith over a cup of coffee tomorrow during work break, be you. The person who needs Christ doesn't need you to be worrying about impressing them. They need you to be you. I can always tell if a guy is struggling with his identity or he's comfortable in his skin. One of the things I tell young men, if you're going to go into ministry and tell people how to live their life, get one. Have a normal life. If the Lord allows you, take a wife. If the Lord blesses you, have children. Have problems. Mess up. It's okay. Live your life normally, and when you stand, they'll know he's really unimpressive up close. But when he preaches, God's word comes through him. I always like to be around people who will quickly admit If you hang around me long enough, I'll underwhelm you. But when they stand to preach and when they minister, they minister in the power of the Spirit. Now, in this God's message from start to finish, remember when Samuel was struggling with young David? What did God say? Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature. I praise God for search committees that followed that Because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ladies, it's true for you as well, not just men. What does the proverbial writer celebrate? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The most beautiful woman you know right now. You may work with her. This is your chance to lean over and say, honey, it's you. But the most beautiful woman you know right now, I promise you, if the Lord gives her a long life, will not look the way she looks in 40 years, in 50 years. She will age, and if she tries to fight it with money, she'll end up looking fake. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The Scripture teaches that God cares about the content of someone's heart. I like how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians. He says these words. But we have this treasure. Where do you put a treasure? Do you have anything valuable to you? You may own a safe, safety deposit box, a bank. Paul said the most valuable thing that God has given the world is the gospel. And where did he put it? He put it in jars of clay. That's not just a band. It's the most meager, humble place you would store anything. Paul's saying the glory of the Gospels been poured into jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When a man of God is truly following God's heart, his presence hits different. Finally, 
His purpose hits different. Look at verse 5. Let's back up to verse 4. In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he doesn't stay in a place of weakness. He says, I'm getting out of the way so the Lord gets the glory so that he works. And what is the purpose of the pulpit, of the preacher, of a pastor, of a spiritual leader? What is ultimately your purpose as a small group leader, as a leader on a mission trip, as someone who's trying to lead your children spiritually? Whatever hat of leadership you wear, what is your purpose? Here it is in verse 5. Watch. So that your faith, now Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers. You could translate this to mean anybody you're leading. If you want to be a mother that crafts your children's heart toward Jesus, you can't save them. But if you want to craft their heart so that they love the Lord Jesus, this is your purpose. If you're a father that wants to lead your sons and daughters, if you're a small group leader, if you are an employer who oversees people, whether you own the company or you are a manager, and you want Christ to be seen in the way that you act and work tomorrow, what is the goal? The goal is not your applause. Your children will rise up and call you blessed one day, but that's not the goal. The goal is not a good employee review. If you treat people fairly and honestly and you're kind to them, most of the times they, that will come, but that's not the goal. The goal of a preacher is not a large auditorium or a large people, a large amount of people on a membership role or access to write books or to have influence. That's not the goal. Those things can come for some guys that have a special giftedness that can encourage all of us. I praise God for well-known pastors that I read and that encouraged me, though I never met them. But that's not the goal. What is the goal? What is the purpose? This is the purpose, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, when a minister, when a pastor, when a leader hits different, you love Jesus more because of him versus loving him more. In other words, you're not tempted to place your faith in his words or his leadership. You're tempted, you're drawn to trust his Savior because his preaching and his ministry made much of his Savior. Whatever is preached is what people are asked to place their faith in. Let me ask you a question. What is one of the epidemics that is a false gospel in our prosperous and rich nation? You already know. It is called often the prosperity gospel. It's cloaked in biblical language. Some of the greatest false teachers in our nation even hold their Bible up and say they're going to preach from the Bible and then never refer to it again. And every single message is exactly the same. You're going to prosper today. Your blessing is on its way. Speak it into existence. No, 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 no. Don't worry about losing your job. That promotion is coming if you'll just trust God. Do you think any of that makes sense to Ukrainian believers in Ukraine this morning? What do you say to the mother huddled in a subway station who loves the Lord Jesus about this being her year of prosper? I'm going to tell you it's a lie from the pit of hell. But when you tell her about a risen Christ, when you tell her about a spirit that will find her when missiles won't, when you tell her that no matter what happens to her or her family, that in Christ, hope and glory is coming. When you tell her 
that even in her anger over what she's seeing, she has a God who knows wrath like we can't imagine, and he gets the last word. When you paint a picture before her of a big God who is sovereign over peace and war and will accomplish his purposes, then all of a sudden she can huddle, but she'll huddle in hope. And this is how you teach people to make sure their faith rests in the Lord and not in the charisma of the personality or whose name or face is on the books. And I've seen so many young Christians struggle when the leader they idolized fell into sin, made bad decisions, or a church they loved began to decrease in membership, struggle to grow, lose its touch on relevance. I've been a part of many churches. Some have grown, some have not. I've known many great men and women of God. Many are remaining faithful. Some have fallen in terrible ways, treacherous sin. They've lost their witness. They've bankrupt their calling. But I keep coming back to this. He's never failed me. He's never failed to keep a promise. He's never broken his word. He's never forsaken me. And while I love the gift and anointing on men and women's lives to spur me on to faith, I would never want you to place your trust and your faith in an individual human being, but rather your faith in Christ. So take this with you and think about it this way. Be careful not to let your faith rest in leaders but follow leaders who cause your faith to rest in God. The word rest is in verse 5. Paul says, I want your faith to rest in God. Therefore, you can be encouraged and challenged by the gifted men and women that God brings into our life, but their performance their track record of decisions, their leadership, their strategic minds, those things all have a shelf life. But if they preach Christ, him crucified, through the full counsel of his word, then you'll walk away having loved them, been blessed by them, but you trust Christ more because of them. Would you bow with me? This morning, I'd like for you and I to close as we began. Of course, I'd love for some young man to find me today and say, Pastor, that sermon helped me see I'm called to be a preacher. If that's you, come find me. We'll help you. Many of you are not. Being a pastor and a preacher is not something that we should run after. It is not something that we should want for what we perceive to be the blessings that come with it. It is a noble and high office. It is a gift to the church, but it is not filled by men who are super spiritual or have a double dose or somehow have a closer connection to Christ than you do. Friend, I want you to know you have the same Bible and the same spirit and the same blood and the same Savior and the same eternity as any man you've ever sat under who preaches his word. But if there has ever been a time for the church 
to produce more leaders. It is now. Reflect on this. Why, why didn't we put a screen in Woodruff? We could. It's because our future campuses are going to be places where young men preach, pastor, and learn to shepherd. And then they're going to train men to do the same. And then they're going to train men to do the same. And what we desire is for more preaching, from more called of God servants. Not less stage time for a select few. Because the fear would be our church would be built on the personality of a leader and not the precious Savior we preach. So I want you to pray for your leaders and your pastors this morning. And if you want to join your pastor's heart, let me tell you what I'm praying for. I shed tears privately to see more men called out to preach. I want to see more men and women step up and say, I'll lead a small group. I'll teach children God's word. I'll disciple some students. I fear that we've been so blessed. It is such a good and rich and easy thing to roll in, grab your favorite coffee, settle in, enjoy the production, and you never answer God's call. I don't want that, brother or sister. I told someone this week, the measuring stick of this church, for me, would be a hundred years from now, somebody come to know Christ in some foreign place. And upon seeing Christ in all of his glory, they look to that missionary and they say, Thank you for coming to my village. Thank you for coming to my city. How did you come to know Jesus? And that missionary would say, my mama was raised at church. That missionary would say, my dad sat under a man who was a preacher sent out by church at the mill. We want our ministry to hit different because I want you to know in a world full of options the gospel hits different and I hope and pray you know him I'm going to pray when I say amen we're just going to worship our way out of here this morning if you want prayer there are prayer counselors in our prayer room if you'd like to talk to one of our pastors they'll be around me in the hub if you want to come and encourage our guests this morning there right down here on the front you can come and love on these pastors you just respond as the Lord leads Father thank you for a word that is good a savior that is sufficient and ministry that is clear I pray that you would protect that at Church of the Moon in Jesus name